from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 24th. Today, a sharp rise in U.S. coronavirus cases, why the virus is so hard to kill, and Olympic athletes set their sights on 2021. Uh, I want America to understand, this week, it's going to get bad. One of the forecasters said to me, we were looking at a freight train coming across the country. We're now looking at a bullet train. We got a sense early on this week that it may be a rough week for the country as far as the coronavirus is concerned. The U.S. Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, went out first thing Monday morning and said pretty clearly to Americans, this is going to get bad. Brady Dennis is a national reporter for The Post. I think we saw signs of that already happening uh, throughout the day on Monday. You saw um, the death toll in the U.S. reach 100 deaths in a single day for the first time since the outbreak began. Um, and the and total death toll pushed past 500. Total infections were well above 40,000 now, making us, you know, the country with the most infections behind China and Italy. And we saw across the country yesterday uh, a group of states, Maryland, Michigan, Virginia, Indiana, the list kept going as the day went on of governors issuing their strictest orders yet for Americans to stay at home and to try to slow the spread of this virus. So I think what experts expect, what health experts expect, is that we're in for a rough week. And partly that is because the virus continues to spread throughout most of the country. It's in every all 50 states now. And also because uh, the country is finally getting up to speed with testing, or at least increasing the capacity for testing. So as we test more people, we inevitably will find a lot more cases. And I think pretty much all health experts expect that curve that we've all been watching to to rise pretty sharply this week. So we did hear the president go out uh, and say quite clearly, you know, that he wants to, quote, open the country back up sooner than later. Weeks, not months were his words. We're opening up this incredible country because we have to do that. I'd love to have it open by Easter. Okay, I would oh, love wow. to have it open okay. by Easter. I will, I will tell you that right now. I would love to have that. It's such an important day for other reasons, but I'll make it an important day for this too. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. But that is in a lot of ways in conflict with what a lot of states are doing, with what a lot of localities are doing, with what a lot of other countries are doing and with a lot of what public health experts recommend to try to stem uh, the spread of this pandemic, of this virus. Another reason why this week is so important and the weeks to come is, of course, the worry of inundating the healthcare system, of over overrunning the hospitals and doctors and nurses with just so many cases that we're not able to adequately um, treat the patients with this disease. Um, as coronavirus continues to spread. I mean, we continue to hear reports from around the country about shortages of protective gear, 
um, you know, face masks, swabs for testing, um, these really critical shortages that can really have an impact in local communities, in- including uh, worries about shortages of beds if the infections rise too high. So as we debate, you know, uh, how this is impacting the economy and what measures we should keep in place or not. I mean, I think it's important to remember that this really all comes back uh, to the fear of overwhelming our health system if if the infections spike so high. And that's why I think you've seen, you know, governors and uh, businesses and, and any number of local communities really put in place unprecedented um, restrictions and begging people to stay home. Uh, because at the end of the day, what none of us want is... Um, a health system that can't treat the people who are sick. So if the coronavirus were a person, how would you describe it? We've kind of been describing it as a bit of an evil genius. It's a really formidable foe, sort of scientifically speaking. I think that there are a lot of qualities of viruses that make them especially potent and especially difficult to tackle. They mutate really fast. They are really sort of streamlined and simple, which means they don't have a lot of vulnerabilities. And so that just means if if you're a scientist trying to come up with an antiviral or a vaccine that can kind of teach the immune system how to fight the virus, it's really, really hard because they don't really give you a lot of openings to get in there and fight it. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I write about science at The Washington Post. So I think for people trying to understand why this novel coronavirus is such a formidable foe, it's just helpful to understand, like, what a virus is. And frankly, I'm not really sure that I know the answer to that question. Like, what is a virus? Is it alive? Is it not alive? Like, it's different from bacteria, but how is it different? What is a virus? So you're not alone. Scientists debate all of those questions also. There are arguments to say that viruses are not alive, and there are arguments to say that they are. They're kind of like zombies, because a virus is like basically the simplest self-replicating unit. They have a little bit of genetic material, either DNA or RNA, which is kind of a related genetic molecule, surrounded by proteins. And that's basically it. And outside of a host cell, viruses are kind of dormant. They don't do anything. So they're dead. And then they get into a host cell and they kind of hijack the machinery of that cell and use that machinery to start making copies of itself. So they use your molecules. They use all of the things that your cell would do to build proteins, to make copies of its DNA. It takes them over and starts using that machinery for its own purposes. So once it enters your body, that's basically when it comes alive. Yeah, they're kind of like... um, really, really destructive burglars in that they, like, break into your house, they use all your furniture, they, like, use your kitchen and eat all your food, and they make 10,000 babies because that's how many (laughs) copies of itself a virus can make in a single cell. And then they leave and they, like, totally leave the place trashed. Um, And they do that in your cells over and over and over again. And so then they kill the cells and they fill up your system with all these copies of themselves and these dead cells and 
Meanwhile, your immune system has sort of like summoned its armies into action and it's attacking the virus with white blood cells and it raises your body temperature, which helps it fight. So you get a fever. And so the symptoms that you're feeling are like, you know, partly the effects of the virus and partly the effects of what your immune system is doing to fight it. And the combination is just like you feel horrible. And in some cases, for a decent fraction of people, at least with this coronavirus, you get really, really sick. So what makes this coronavirus particularly effective as a virus in taking over your system? So this novel coronavirus is an RNA virus. That's a type of virus that kind of encodes all of its genetic material in the molecule RNA. And most RNA viruses, they don't have any kind of proofreading system when they replicate themselves. So they make a copy of RNA and they make a ton of mistakes. And that means that they're able to mutate really fast because they introduce all of these changes. And that means that they're constantly mutating and evolving really fast and really able to adapt to new environments. But it also means that they make a lot of copies of themselves that just like don't function because sometimes you make a mistake that turns out to be deadly. So it's sort of like a double-edged sword for RNA viruses. And the coronavirus, what makes it sort of particularly unique is that it has a proofreading process. And so it is able to correct some of the mistakes that get introduced. And so it sort of has this like best of both worlds situation where it's able to mutate really fast. It's able to jump from a bat's nose into a human's nose and sort of adapt to that new environment really quickly. But it also doesn't make so many defunct copies of itself. It sort of makes less of a mess. And so it is not wasting so much time making copies that don't work. And it also seems like this novel coronavirus is just able to spread a lot more easily than other things that we've seen in the recent past, even when compared to something like SARS. Yeah. So SARS is a related coronavirus, and they're actually very similar. And like this one, it's really, really deadly. But SARS, when it gets into the human body, it kind of tends to lodge itself low in the lungs, where it can wreak a lot of havoc and cause a lot of damage. But it doesn't, you know, it's not very easily like sneezed or coughed onto the next person. And so that's why SARS didn't spread so fast. And, you know, countries were able to get it under control, um, you know, a lot more easily than this one. But this new coronavirus dwells both in the lower respiratory tracts, so sort of deep in the lungs where it can really hurt you, but also sort of in your upper airway, in your nasal passage and things where, you know, all you've got to do is like sneeze or cough or just like it's very easily dispelled out of your system and onto its next victim. You know, viruses that stay in your upper airway are kind of like the co- are the common cold. And actually, there are other coronaviruses that cause the common colds that are just like, you know, gets in your nose. You know, you don't feel so great for a few days, but and it spreads really easily. But at the end, you know, it doesn't really do that much harm. And then it gets in the lower airway and it causes a lot of damage, but it doesn't spread so fast. And this one cuts the difference. And that's part of what has made it both so virulent, so dangerous, but also so easily spread. I'm also just curious about the shape of the virus, because we've seen a lot of these like close up microscope photos on TV. And and basically it looks to me like this sort of floating orb with a bunch of spikes coming out of it. What are the spikes for? And is that part of why the coronavirus is so effective? So the spikes are the proteins that kind of coat the outside of the virus. And 
basically what they do is they act like keys. That's how the virus gets into your cell and kind of unlocks it and opens it up and then sort of takes over. Those spiky proteins, those are both like the virus's secret to success, but they are also kind of one of the main targets in developing weapons against it. Because if we can figure out how to teach the immune system how to recognize the spike proteins really quickly um, and say like, oh, these are a problem, we need to summon our defenses against them, then you can basically have the immune system prepped and prepared for a potential invasion by this virus and put it in a better position to fight back. And that's what a vaccine does, essentially, is a vaccine is usually some sort of combination of proteins associated with a known disease, and you basically give them to the immune system in advance, and then the immune system is like, all right, I know what I'm looking for. As soon as I see it, I'm going to like, you know, go into attack mode. And that's why a vaccine will protect you against the disease. And in the meantime, if we don't have a vaccine for this coronavirus yet, are there any other natural defenses that our bodies have against viruses like these? I mean, we have our own immune systems, right? And actually, you know, as dangerous and as virulent as this virus is, most people are actually able to fight it off with their own immune systems. I mean, all of these reports that we hear about people getting sick but only having very mild symptoms or potentially even no symptoms – Those people are people whose immune systems are doing a really good job at fighting off this virus, and so they're not suffering very much. And one of the things that researchers are really trying to figure out is why is it that some people's immune systems seem like totally capable of handling this on their own, and why do some people's immune responses, either they go into overdrive and that's what makes someone really sick, that's what gives them a really high fever, or they're just not able to fight off the virus in the same way. You know, we have these antibiotics that work really well in fighting off a broad array of bacteria, like penicillin, for example, you know, stops bacteria from building their cell walls. And it works against all kinds of bacteria because all bacteria have cell walls, whereas viruses, because they're so streamlined, they have these very few processes that are innate to them, which means there are fewer targets for drugs to work against. They have no cellular machinery of their own, so all of the things they're using are ours. So their proteins are our proteins, and their weaknesses are our weaknesses. So drugs that might work against them could also hurt us too. So we, we're trying to figure out like what's an antiviral that targets something that is specific to this virus that won't actually hurt a human cell as well, that like the human cell won't be bothered by. It's a big hurdle in developing an antiviral, something that we can give people who are suffering from the disease right now in order to help them fight it while we wait for a vaccine to be developed that will ultimately prevent people from getting sick in the first place. At the risk of making this virus sound too human, what is what does it want? Like, what is it trying to do? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about viruses... We have every reason to believe they've been around as long as cells have been. Some scientists even think that viruses are actually like precursors to cellular life, and they just want to replicate themselves. They just want to like keep their genetic line around forever. And they've done like a decent job at it. 
But this, the way to do that is to be really infectious and actually not that dangerous because, you know, for a virus's perspective, a host that it kills is a dead end, right? That host is not going to pass the disease on to somebody else. And so, you know, a common cold is actually kind of a more evolutionarily successful virus than something like Ebola or this coronavirus. And there are actually, there are viruses that have been in our species so long, they like go back to before our species was even our species. Like um, the one that causes oral herpes has been around in the human lineage for at least 6 million years. So the evolutionary pressure on viruses is to become less virulent, less dangerous. It's cold comfort for people who are sick right now, but it is kind of one long-term hope is that like eventually this virus is going to have to become less dangerous. And maybe one day, not so far in the future, it's going to be just a common cold kind of virus that circulates every year and maybe gives us a cough or makes us sneeze. But at the end of the day, we move on and it does too. Sarah Kaplan covers science for The Post. And now, one more thing. On Tuesday, the Japanese Prime Minister and the International Olympic Committee announced that they're postponing the Tokyo Olympics. Because of the pandemic, it's now rescheduled for sometime next year. Altering the Olympic schedule this far down the road is uh, almost unprecedented. The modern Olympics date back to 1896, and there have been a couple cancellations, but only due to wartime. But there's never been an Olympic postponement. My name is Rick Mace, and I cover Olympics for The Post. In recent days, many athletes have become increasingly vocal about the hardships they're finding. Hello? My name is Colin Van Wicklin, and I am on the U.S. national team for men's gymnastics. I'm an all-arounder, which means I do all six events. They're having a difficult time finding places to train. Swimming pools, gymnasiums, tracks, they've all been shut down. For the past, I would say, especially two years, you know, my body has been what I refer to as a well-oiled machine. It's a very strict schedule that I know exactly what my body needs to be at my best for training. And in many places, government restrictions is making it hard for athletes even to leave their homes or find public gyms to go to. You know, with the shutdowns everywhere, that's not all possible. You know, most... Olympic-level athletes are spoiled with the best equipment, and, you know, that's what it requires to be at the best and to perform at the best in the world. And, you know, at local club gyms, they're not, the equipment isn't really made for Olympic hopefuls. The Summer Olympics takes place once every four years. If you miss your shot at a Games, it could mean waiting four more years to fulfill your sporting dreams. For a younger athlete, let's say a young gymnast, it might mean that it's your only shot to ever compete at an Olympics. For older athletes, someone like hurdler Lolo Jones, it could mean one final shot at Olympic glory. 
I'm Lolo Jones. I'm a three-time Olympian, and I'm also one of the rare athletes that have competed in a summer and winter Olympics. And the sports I've competed in are in track and field and also bobsled. For me, it's tough because I am an older athlete. This was my last push for a summer Olympics. So it's kind of ironic that I was one of the main ones pushing for it to be postponed because honestly, I don't know if my body has another year left in it where it can compete in track. So, but at the same time, it was, this was the right thing to do. It was putting lives in jeopardy and we just, there's bigger things than sport. And yes, I'm, I'm frustrated that I'll have to like find energy and restart and, and regroup for next year. But at the same time, you know, we were all stuck in a bad situation and it just, this is, this is what needed to happen. So postponing the Olympics creates a lot of very difficult problems to solve. It's not as simple as a sports league like the NBA saying it's going to suspend its season. There's sponsors, there's uh, broadcasters like NBC, there's more than 200 nations and thousands and thousands of athletes who've been training their entire lives to compete. Delaying it might give a few athletes a little bit more time to prepare. World championships that are scheduled for next summer might be canceled or postponed. You know, athletes have their own plans and, uh, you know, both professionally and personally that they have to consider. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for more news and insights about the coronavirus outbreak, consider subscribing to another podcast here at The Post. The Daily 202's Big Idea comes out every morning, and this week there's a lot of late-breaking news about the wrangling on Capitol Hill over a potential coronavirus stimulus package. To find out more, subscribe at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.